0: Jay Rosen is moving this week, so I am joined by my very special guest host, Christy grant Park.
1: What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance
0: Podcast Network.
2: Stories we look at this week include the indictment of the Trump Organization, its chief financial officer, how whistleblowers protect the bottom line, the AMEC-Foster Wheeler FCPA action, the U.S. government List its AML priorities. We asked a question, do lawyers make good gatekeepers, and asked for audience input on that question. We consider human-centered design and engaging ethics and compliance programs serving user needs. How to reduce your CCPA risk. We explored Dick Casson's question, was AMAC Foster Wheeler afraid of his agents? how you can audit your climate risk, and how do you evaluate the value of ethics. Podcast, webinars, and a special announcement about my book. All this and more on This Week in FCPA.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 259. For the week ending July 2, 2021, the Trump Organization Indicted Edition. As the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer are criminally indicted, Tom and Jay are preparing for the 4th of July, and we're here to take a look back at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our eye. Jay, are ready to hit it?
1: I am. From broadcasting in a known location behind the orange curtain So I will not make any comments about the arrest this morning. But let's go on and talk about the week's stories.
0: Well, uh, I will, because uh, the lead story in every major newspaper was, of course, the corrupt Trump administration, or excuse me, Trump organization, has finally been uh, uh, first steps to be brought to justice. The Times, the Journal, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, we've linked to them all. It's uh, in a 15-year tax scheme. Uh, Alan Weisberg, the chief financial officer, did the perp walk in the Lower Manhattan Court, criminal courts building today. This is not a federal claim, but a state court claim, so state court in New York. Obviously, this is as big a news as it gets. So uh, we're going to probably keep taking a look at this going forward. Jay, what do you have
1: for us? Uh, I've got something from our good friend Bob Conlin at Navix Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. And we're going to take, take a look at how whistleblowers can protect your bottom line. Organizations with a culture of integrity and respect often attract the best people, lose fewer people to undesired turnover, and maintain strong reputational brands across networks. As we have trumpeted year after year, firms that rank among the world's most ethical companies outperform the S&P 500 by 3.3%. This is effectively the ROI of compliance. Incidents of misconduct destroy culture, particularly if the organization has been negligent in driving a top-down culture of integrity. These incidents can harm employees, partners, corporate reputation, and as a result, the bottom line. Unfortunately, at many organizations, there is no focus on identifying incidents and putting corrective action plans in place. Senior managers may look at trainings, policies, and the like as unnecessary expenses, but they don't understand the ROI of compliance. You need to invest in your act of compliance. An eye-opening report by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, ACFE, shows just how financially prudent it is to maintain active compliance mechanisms, such as employee whistleblower hotlines and training programs. The ACFE report focuses on financial fraud, but the lessons can be applied anywhere. The study shows that internal audit and management's own investigation skills are not sufficient to detect and deter the majority of fraud. The two methods together accounted for a paltry 28% of incidents uncovered in the US. On the other hand, incident reports, which the ACFE calls TIPS, were the most common source of fraud reports. And in organizations that provided formal reporting tools, 46% of the cases were detected by TIPS. Hotlines increased the rate of detection as well and they correlate with reduced overall cost to organization. Fraud losses were 50% smaller at organizations with hotlines and related incident management systems. So how do you protect and support whistleblowers to enhance your bottom line? The message is simple. A comprehensive ethics and compliance program that includes incident reporting channels for whistleblowers along with active support for those who report makes good business sense. But it only works if company leadership gets fully behind the program and creates a workplace culture that supports transparency, speaking up when something's not right. This comes with a caveat. Don't encourage employees to speak up if you're not ready to listen. The ROI of compliance is only fully realized when automated systems work in concert with a strong culture of ethics and respect. Now, that's how you protect your people, your reputation, and your bottom line.
0: Jay, we had the first FCPA enforcement action of 2021 involving a corporation late last week when Amec Foster Wheeler settled a longstanding FCPA uh, investigation and now enforcement action around uh, bribery and corruption in Brazil, specifically involving Petrobras. Uh, Lots of people wrote about it. I took a deep dive three-part series on my blog. Matt Kelly and ourselves, the coolest guy in compliance, uh, took a deep dive in compliance into the weeds. Mike Volkoff also took a deep dive on corruption, crime, and compliance. And as usual, Harry Kassin broke the story on the FCPA blog. A little bit later, we're going to have a second story um, about this case that Dick Kassin I thought explored a really interesting angle. I'm going to ask you to talk, that, uh, talk about that in a little bit. But this was a really interesting case. Uh, for several reasons uh, one was the um, agents involved were clearly corrupt everybody knew it the country manager knew it the uh, general counsel of the business unit knew it the former chairman of the board knew it the um, apparently the the current or then current CEO acting CEO knew it and uh, nevertheless it was done it also uh, no doubt inspired by your former career, Jay, had several Hollywood angles, uh, one of which, of course, was the Taylor of New York, who uh, was uh, involved in the nefarious activity. Uh, I swear if you took this screenplay to Hollywood, they'd laugh you out of town because they'd say no one would believe this. Nevertheless, we had uh, the Taylor, not the Taylor of Panama, but the Taylor of New York involved. We had uh, multiple millions of dollars paid. We had overrides of internal controls. The thing that re- was really not explored as fully as I would have hoped in the settlement enforcement settlement documents, Jay, was that this case involved a Houston-based uh, company called Foster Wheeler. That's when it started. Foster Wheeler merged with AMAC to form AMAC Foster Wheeler. AMAC Foster Wheeler was later um, acquired by the John Wood Group, PLC there was no discussion about the lack of due diligence in any of those subsequent mergers. And we've talked a lot on this podcast and others around the need for robust compliance due diligence in the mergers and acquisition sphere. And yet here we had two um, mergers and acquisitions where clearly contracts with high-risk entities and high-risk countries on high-risk deals were all a part of it, yet – Nobody seemed to look at it, and no one seemed to pick it up in post-acquisition forensic audit, which is equally strange. And it turned into a $177 million worldwide fine and penalty in the United States, the United Kingdom, Brazil, and perhaps even some other countries. So uh, lots to think about in this case. Uh, Like I said, if you made this up, probably no one would believe it. Um, Nevertheless, uh, once again, the FCPA proves stranger than fiction. Okay, so uh, next up, we've got something that we're picking up from
1: Kyle Brasser at Compliance Week and our good friend Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal, and we also link to the government documents. Uh, FinCEN puts financial institutions on notice with first AML CFT priorities. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, tipped its hand at big changes In announcing the first government-wide list of priorities for anti-money laundering and counterfeiting and the financing of terrorism, AML-CFT. The guidance shared Wednesday comes pursuant to the AML Act of 2020, passed as part of the country's 2021 defense spending bill that survived a veto attempt by former President Trump. The announcement of the priorities requires no immediate action, but FinCEN suggested financial institutions begin preparing for changes in the Bank Secrecy Act, and that they are expected to that are expected to be announced by the end of the year. The AML Act requires that FinCEN announce related regulations within 180 days of the establishment of AML CFT priorities. The agency, along with its banking regulator, pairs. The Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, National Credit Union Administration, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency are planning to revise the BSA uh, to exec- address how priorities will be incorporated into requirements. Banks are not required to incorporate these priorities into their risk-based Bank Se- Secrecy Act compliance programs until the effective date of the revised final edition. FinCEN consulted with other offices of the Treasury Department as well as law enforcement. Here are the 8 priorities to take away in no particular order. First up, corruption. FinCEN cited President Biden's recent memo established combating corruption as a national security priority. Two, cybercrime, including common threats like social engineering, software vulnerability exploits, and network attacks. Treasury is particularly concerned about cyber-enabled financial crime and ransomware attacks. Three, terrorist financing, both international and domestic. Covered institutions are reminded of existing obligations to identify and file SARS, which are suspicious activity reports. Fraud, which is believed to generate the largest share of illicit proceeds in the US. Healthcare fraud in particular is an area of concern, with the COVID-19 pandemic requiring attention to schemes involving economic impact payments. Five, transnational criminal organizational activity, particularly Mexico and Russia's operations in the U.S. Next, drug trafficking organization activity, which includes proceeds that may be laundered in or through the U.S. in addition to the drugs themselves. Human trafficking and human smuggling, which uses a variety of mechanisms to move illicit proceeds ranging from cash smuggling by individual victims to sophisticated cash cash smuggling operations. And last but not least, proliferation financing and proliferation support networks. Global correspondent banking is a principal vulnerability and driver of proliferation financing risks within the U.S., due to its central role in processing U.S. dollar transactions. The AML Act requires that FinCEN updates its priorities every four years to reflect new or evolving threats.
0: Tom? So, Jay, next up, we had a couple of interesting articles, I thought, uh, on a topic that um, we, I don't, I'm not quite sure we've covered, at least with this kind of specificity, and it's can lawyers be gatekeepers? You and I have talked in, on a multitude of podcasts about the gatekeeping role in compliance. Certainly a compliance professional has that, a CFO has it, accounts payable. Uh, and I think we had always assumed that lawyers had a gatekeeper's role. But really in an interesting kind of academic debate uh, by at least two people uh, that we've cited here in today's uh, show notes, um, that's, perhaps that's a that's an open question. And it started with an article by Sung Wei Kim from the UCLA School of Law entitled Do Lawyers Make Good Gatekeepers? It's a chapter in the upcoming uh, Cambridge Handbook of Investor Protection, which will be published later this year. And I, I'm going to quote this because it really lays it out on the issue of and this comes uh, directly from her abstract. On the issue of whether lawyers make effective gatekeepers, this chapter finds that the empirical evidence is both complex and mixed. But the weight of the evidence generally supports that general counsel are effective, albeit conflicted gatekeepers, who appear willing to police material illegalities, but who also tolerate a good deal of aggressive and perhaps unethical conduct. The more limited evidence about outside lawyers – suggests they may be less likely to press their clients' representatives to comply with the law, opting instead to perform their strictly advisory roles as neutral risk assessors. Nevertheless, their involvement in disclosure matters appears to generally have some salutary long-term effects, demonstrating perhaps a net benefit to public investors. Um, So then uh, there's an article by Alan Matkins responding to this critique, and Alan Matkins says that, that Professor Kim is actually asking the wrong question. He says that you shouldn't ask whether lawyers should be gatekeepers. You should ask uh, what's the role of lawyers as advocates and counselors. These roles, particularly these advocates, are in the he believes in conflicts with that role of gatekeepers. That is particularly true for outside counsel, um, and imposing gatekeeper responsibilities on private counsel creates an irreconcilable conflict that effectively deprives clients of effective legal representation. Um, So I really thought that was quite interesting. I had really not considered uh, whether or not My role as a lawyer to advise and counsel is antithetical to that of a gatekeeper, both when I was in-house and certainly outside. So I raise this because I'd like people to start thinking about this and talking about this. Um, The Department of Justice has made clear that in the realm of internal investigations, they're much going to prefer an external counsel uh, to come in and do it uh, for credibility reasons. Um, But is external counsel going to act as a gatekeeper uh, on either things that finds or new things that might come up? And I was particularly troubled around this discussion for in-house counsel. So a uh, really interesting debate. At it, it, first, I thought this was just a kind of an academic kind of question, but the more I thought about it, uh, the more uh, I thought there may, maybe there is something here and maybe the general counsel shouldn't be a gatekeeper if their role their role is different than that of a compliance officer, but um, that role may have a significant difference, which they cannot comply with their ethical obligations under state bar laws. So, um, really d- interesting question, and I think this is one that uh, perhaps we're going to need to explore and uh, later. And I would even invite, if any listeners have any thoughts on this question because it's so novel, uh, you know, reach out to me or, or Jay. Uh, we'll give our email addresses uh, at the end. What do you have for us next, Jay? Uh, Next, I
1: have part two of a five-part series that we started last week with a friend of the podcast, Karsten Tams, and he's going to take a look at human-centered design and engaging ethics and compliance program, which serves users' needs. I'm going to uh, just share with you some brief themes, but you really need to read the article that's self-published on LinkedIn to get the full flavor. Human-centered design can help us overcome the paramount obstacles standing in the way of designing engaging ethics and compliance programs. The tendency to view and approach employees as potential offenders is wrong. A human-centered program supports employees in actualizing their ethical capabilities and realizing their ethical aspirations. As a result, Employees will make more active use of ethics codes, trainings, hotlines, and other resources. Here are some human-centered design tips from Karsten. Put your user at the center. Human-centered design starts with an intuitive yet frequently overlooked idea. If we want users to like and use our product, its design has to serve users' needs. Love thy user. Human-centered design is an approach to creating a solution that is tailored to the needs of the persons who will use it or be impacted by it. If we want our users to fall in love with our designs, we have to fall in love with our users. Walk in their shoes. Human-centered design is all about understanding the people we are designing for. The design of engaging solutions requires that designers empathize with the users. Through a glass, darkly, Employees as rule breakers. Human-centered design can help us overcome the paramount obstacles standing in the way of designing engaging ENC programs. The tendency to view the, and approach employees as potential offenders. Self-affirmation. This theory indicates that people have a basic need to maintain their sense of integrity, and they want to believe that on a whole they are good and appropriate people. See the whole person. The principle of human-centered design is useful to avoid a lopsided fixation on people's delinquent proclivities. Be a moral agent. This strength-based perspective is supported by research in moral psychology. Jonathan Haidt and Craig Joseph found that most people across cultures aspire to shared ethical values, such as harm avoidance, fairness, loyalty, and respect. Put your moral agents to work. Real world examples of moral agencies at work abound. A study by the Ethics and Compliance Initiative shows that the vast majority of employees who observe misconduct in the workplace report it despite the fact that they are likely to suffer retaliation. Allyship works. Ethics and compliance programs that approach employees as allies rather than potential offenders are more effective in engaging employees in producing overall ethical outcomes. A new user persona, a new design problem. Our understanding of users has profound implications for the design of ENC programs. When we view employees merely as potential offenders, we design inhibitive programs aimed at constraining misconduct. A human centered, empathetic perspective allows us to gain a more holistic understanding of employees as users of ENC programs. From the strength based, point of view, a radically transformed design problem emerges. The question is no longer how can we constrain employees' proclivity for misbehaving, but rather a new conversation is how can we develop a supportive program that affirms, nurtures, and harnesses employees' ethical capabilities? When we design ethics and compliance programs accordingly, feelings of compliance fatigue, cynicism, and adversity can subside. And the possibility of a constructive partnership between ENC practitioners and employees arises. Next week, Carson will be back with his next article. If you build it with them, they will engage. Tom?
2: Before we get to our next article, we're going to take a short break.
0: So, Jay, uh, CCPA risk is something that I think is on the forefront of uh, every business, consumer-facing business in California's mind. I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, but uh, lawyers at Debovois writing in the uh, New York University's Compliance and Enforcement put together seven tips for reducing your CCPA litigation risk. Number one, protect and delete sensitive personal information that triggers civil liability. Two. Properly configure websites and cloud services. Number three, adopt measures against credential stuffing and account takeovers. Number four, ensure compliance with the CCA privacy provisions. Five, be sure your privacy policy doesn't overstate your data security measures. Six, maintain a robust vendor management program. Seven, implement the hallmarks of a reasonable cybersecurity program, including conducting risk assessments, implementing threat detection and monitoring tools, having dedicated cybersecurity personnel, and conducting cybersecurity training. Jay, although I know this was directed at the CCPA, I think it's really an excellent review for any cybersecurity compliance program, and I would hope our compliance colleagues listening to this podcast would check this out because if they're asked to help design a cyber compliance program or just even give an opinion, this really is a great framework to, to sit down and think through this. Once again, although this is focused on the CCPA, I think it has much broader implications going forward. So Jay, next up, I've asked you to talk about uh, what I thought was a really interesting uh, article uh, by uh, Dick Casson about the Amec Foster Wheeler case, and once again, given your professional background as a h- published Hollywood screenwriter, uh, where where do you see this kind of story?
1: You don't. And like you said, Tom, we, we can we get presented with facts on a weekly basis, and when we read them, they just you're gonna say no 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 person in their right mind would do this. So uh, this is uh, Dick Casson writing in his FCPA blog. And he asked, how did the London-based Amic Foster Wheeler end up with agents in three different countries for a single, relatively small project in Brazil, including two agents disqualified by their own due diligence and a third agent that AFW thought had lost influence? Last week, the company agreed to pay around $41 million to resolve criminal charges. So um, you've talked about this earlier in the podcast. So what I want to focus on is um, there are are a couple situations here where the power seemed to shift to the agent. And they were told that if the agent was not going to pay, get paid, there was he could potentially be a problem going forward. And Richard talks about a couple of examples in Egypt There was a company he knew that fired its long serving agent as part of a new agentless business approach. And within months, labor problems engulfed the company's local operations. Then, likewise, in Indonesia, a company warned, rather, a company wanted a fresh start and terminated its powerful local agent without cause, offering just a token final payment. The insulted former agent refused to sign any documents related to the company's business, and without the agent's cooperation as the official country rep, the company couldn't obtain news visas for expat workers or permits to import-export equipment. The standoff lasted years. At AMEC, Foster Wheeler, did the fear of agents contribute to bad decisions? Did the company pay Brazil's agent's commission not only to win and keep the Petrobras project, but also to avoid future problems. Ironically, Petrobras eventually canceled the program for unrelated financial reasons. By that time, Amec Foster-Willer had already made a $13 million in profit, the DOJ said. Did the Italian, Monaco, and Brazil agents set up a clever trap that finally caught AFW? The Feds don't adopt the narrative. Instead— The DOJ and the SEC both say the company succumbed to the profit motive. Charles Kane, head of the SEC's FCPA enforcement unit, said the potential for a new market cannot be a siren song that overwhelms good corporate judgment. The DOJ's Nicholas McQuaid said in the pursuit of profits, the company resorted to corruption, which distorts markets and undermines the rule of law. Still, the SEC included in its settlement order the quote from AFW's country manager who said the Brazil agent, quote, can make life difficult for us if we do not pay them, unquote. Did fear of agents play a role in AFW's bribery? Maybe, but that's no excuse for bribery. And of course, no company should expect sympathy after ignoring the requirements of its own internal compliance program. Tom, back to you.
0: Sure, Jay. Um, Next up, we have a couple of articles from the great new blog site, Practical uh, ESG. And uh, this is edited by Lawrence Heim, but today we have two articles from one of the advisory board members, Mark Trexler. And they are around auditing your climate risk assumptions, parts one and two. And we have, of course, linked to both. Uh, uh, blog post in today's show notes, Uh, and he goes through some of the assumptions that uh, should be worth uh, reviewing that uh, inform corporate and investor climate policies and responses. And the most important thing you can do is to shrink your carbon footprint. I think there's really no surprise there, but how you do so and how you measure it, uh, the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is the best source of information, what about resilience to physical risks of climate change? I know, Jay, um, the weather out in your part of the world is quite hot. As you get further north, it's extraordinarily hot. What that's going to mean for this fire seasons is, is really this uh, anyone's guess. But uh, the, the far east, excuse me, the northeast is hot. And uh, um, so we're having some very difficult and different weather. Business planning and decision-making should focus on small 2 and 1.5 Celsius change scenarios. Market mechanisms such as carbon offsets will be available uh, to significantly moderate business costs. Systemic climate change really is outside the ability of businesses uh, to influence, although we should note here, Jay, that there is uh, at least one Texas congressman who wants to change the orbit of the Earth and or moon. Uh, to help with climate change, so perhaps help is coming in that direction. And um, we have um, the uh, uh, final point or final wrap up is this is really just a um, a broad framework for you to ask questions. And I know we've talked about ESG on this pod a lot, Jay, and we'll continue to do so. I can't emphasize enough that this site, Practical ESG, is it's really one of the the leaders in this discussion and putting out some really quality information. I did a podcast interview with its uh, editor, Lawrence Heim, uh, last week and it will post next week on uh, the ESG report, so uh, check that out. But for all the compliance professionals out there wondering kind of what questions can I ask that are into the weeds beyond the general framework of ESG, this is a great place to start, particularly uh, for climate risk. Jay, over to you. You forgot to
1: mention that, like yourself, Lawrence is a fellow Longhorn. Hook him, Horns. Hook em. All right. So uh, I'll get back to this is the final article we're going to talk about today. Uh, this comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights by Henry Cronk. And Henry asks, how do you demonstrate the value of ethics? When Andy Powell was appointed Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, at a multinational manufacturing company called Flex 18 months ago he was presented with a challenging task how do you generate a positive value-based ethics culture across com- a company with 100 facilities that employ more than 160,000 people over five continents and the initial in the initiative had to work with Flex's bottom line Just over a year ago, Powell developed a data reporting program across the company's company's 50 largest sites by revenue. From this data, he and his team created ethics scorecards by which they could benchmark progress. While he says it's too early to declare victory, Powell contends the intervention has already realized important returns for the company's workforce and its shareholders. So looking to demonstrate the value of ethics, Flex implemented a scorecard program across 50 sites. Flex shifted its business strategy in early 2019 when it hired, and I hope I do all right with the name, Ravafi Adavafi as CEO. Under her leadership, the company exchanged its values-based outlook to a values-based alternative. It implemented an ethics reporting platform and began tracking a variety of metrics, like employee misconduct, sexual harassment, and various forms of fraud. These actions might not qualify as whistleblower reporting, but reporting and eliminating them nonetheless makes business safer and more honest for its members. Powell and his team have recently begun to compare misconduct and unethical behavior across regions and sectors. They created an ethics scorecard based on this data and with benchmarking, they can then identify hotspots or problem areas. A shift from shareholder to stakeholder value. Many business leaders have typically viewed investments in ethics cultures as something that it's nice to have, but not necessarily for delivering shareholder value. Powell, however, believes this is changing. He says that his team has found a positive correlation between the site's ethical compliance and output. These dynamics pit value against ethics mirror that go that mirror the ongoing debate surrounding a corporation's purpose. As we all know, economist and Nobel laureate Milton Friedman immortalized the view that a corporation is beholden exclusively to its shareholders in a 1970 essay published by the New York Times. Still, the Business Roundtable, a prominent D.C. lobbying group composed of CEOs of many large American companies, for years has published an annual statement of purpose of the corporation. And for years, it echoed Friedman's theory of shareholder primacy. But in 2019, it broke with this tradition and shifted its stated focus from shareholders to stakeholders. While each of our individual companies serves its own corporate purpose, the statement reads, we share a fundamental commitment to all our stakeholders. The relationship between ethics and profits. Ethics ex- experts have debated the shareholder value of ethics for years. While many statements like those at Business Roundtable and, and survey support this view, the topic is fundamentally difficult to quantify. For Powell at Flex, however, the debate is just window dressing. The company's ethics program is still in its early days, and it's unclear to what extent it will work in the long term. But at the same time, he views actions taken to increase shareholder and stakeholder value as one and the same, and he believes the scorecard is working. A big part of the challenge traditionally for compliance teams is to prove the value that they're adding to the enterprise But with the data they're collecting now, they can benchmark where they are and show there is a direct correlation between having a strong ethical culture and financial and stock price performance. It's right there in the data. There is no debate. Tom, now it's time where we take a look at different podcasts and
0: webinars for this week. What's up first? Uh, I am continuing my 10-part series, Just a Labor of Love, on the exploration Plutarch's Lives with my good friend Richard Lummis. We mine some history. We talk about leadership and throw in a little compliance for good measure. Uh, This week, we posted Alcibiades and Coriolanus. Uh, Alcibiades, one of the most fascinating characters in all of Greek, ancient Greece, which is filled with fascinating characters. Coriolanus, of course, uh, made it to Shakespeare. And so it turned out there were a fair number of uh, Parts of Coriolanus's real life that mirrored his art life. So, check out that episode. Uh, Are you an MCU fan? Well, if so, check out the uh, also special podcast series I'm doing with Megan Doherty, the uh, co founder of One Stone Creative, uh, on Loki. We caught up this week with the first three episodes, and then we'll post uh, after each episode going forward. Of course, Tracking Through Compliance is still running this summer. Uh, This week, some of our episodes included Operation Annihilate, Among Time, Who Mourns for Adonaius, The Changeling Mirror Mirror, and perhaps the greatest of all uh, Star Trek, the original series, shows, City on the Edge of Forever. So, Jay, I know we had an Integrity Through Compliance podcast drop this week. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Thanks, Tom. Uh, this week we dropped episode 12, which is entitled Three Views on Responding to a Government Contractors Corporate Crisis. Uh, we, the podcast was led by affiliated monitors Rod Grandin, and he was joined by Jenner and Block partner David Robbins and former Angility Holdings General Counsel Tom Miller. And they took an in depth look and they focused on a hypothetical situation where there was a crisis that management faced uh, discuss, uh, discussing ethics and compliance and having to deal with an M&A situation. So it's your classic law firm, uh, law, law school uh, question. And they basically took a look at it through three different lenses, through the general counsel, through outside legal counsel, and through a federal acquisition official. So uh, we will link to this in the show notes, and uh, we hope you take a look at it. Uh, Next up, we've got a couple webinars on July 13th. Please join K2 Integrity for its virtual compliance conference on ESG compliance risks for financial institutions. Information registrations we link to on the web, on the um, show notes, sorry. And Tom, we are now
0: in July. Is there a book sighting yet? There is. And uh, officially the book is available uh, we're going to blast out a lot of information on it next week. But if you want a sneak peek, you can order it today on the LexisNexis site. I've linked to it in the show notes. So uh, extraordinarily pleased to have the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition available. In my humble opinion, the best single volume on the nuts and bolts of compliance. So uh, check it out and let me know what you think. Perfect.
1: So as Tom said earlier in the podcast, If you'd like to get in touch with us and have any feedback on the question about do attorneys make good gatekeepers, Tom can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. and I can be reached at the initial J Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So, Tom, we're both moved into new uh, places. We're still unpacking. uh, Any uh, Fourth of July plans on the horizon for you and missus?
0: So we have a grill, yeah. we have hot dogs, uh, we have uh, lots of movies, and uh, we're going to uh, check out the Kerrville 4th of July scene. Uh, 4th of July is probably my favorite holiday of the year, so I always enjoy it. And um, we will move move forward and celebrate the 4th. I will post the Gettysburg Address on July 4th. Is, which is I, what well, I do annually, Annually, I think everyone should read it, uh, if, or the U.S. Uh, declaration of Independence, because I think I'm going to post them both. both. We need it this year. So on the third, I'll post the Gettysburg Address, and the fourth, I'll post uh, the declarations. If you haven't read the declaration in a while, I would urge you to do so. It's, it's a, obviously the foundational document of this country, but it's also a great piece of writing and a great piece of history and a great piece of America. So I hope everyone has a uh, safe 4th, Jay. I noted that the LA Police Department's already uh, had some problems with fireworks uh, around the 4th of July, and we wish a speedy recovery to everyone on the LA Bomb Squad who may have been injured in their detonation of a a rogue fireworks stand, Uh, very tragic. So uh, be careful out there. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, uh, stay cool. If you're in the Northeast, I hope the rain hits you so that you will cool down as well. And for the rest of the country, uh, stay safe. Thanks, Tom. Uh, On behalf of Tom Fox, the voice
1: of compliance, and me, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, Episode 259, for the week ending July 2nd, 2021, the Trump Organization Indicted Edition. We would like to thank you in advance for spending part or some of your Fourth of July weekend with us. Uh, I echo Tom Tom's remarks. I look forward to taking a read of the documents that he posts, and we'd like to thank. We'd like to look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at this week in the FCPA. Take care. Hello,
0: everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at JayRosen at AffiliatedMonitors.com. You can reach me at TFOX at TFOXLaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening.